Well, should we start with kind of a mission statement about the Black Market Book Club? Yeah. Which I don't know if we've really clearly defined even amongst ourselves yet. I don't think we have. Yeah. Well, basically, we have kind of a a two-person book club going on right now. And Mm. uh, we just thought it would be cool if every once in a while we talked about what what we've been reading. And, you know, just apart from the mission statement of the podcast, like it doesn't have to be a book about therapy. It doesn't have to be a book about the human condition necessarily, but just, you know, take a little, a little recreational break. And, and I guess it can be a little bit more formal than that too. Yeah. Some of them definitely tie into episodes or we've like discussed on an episode that like yeah. maybe a book is good to read and we go back and we read it. Like they definitely dovetail, but yeah. And like there, I guess the reason that we're kind of starting off with the plague is that it absolutely deals with the human condition, especially during COVID times, which is why I started reading it. Because as an English major, I feel like this was a logical place to look for empathy. And I started reading it back in like April or May and sort of like took my time because the the book actually, like it chronicles a year, essentially. And Mm. the year is basically what we've been through thus far. Like it's March to February or something like that. So I started reading it shortly after the lockdown and just took my time. And like when a chapter would would start with like the next season, I'd put the book down and wait until that season to keep reading again. And it's it's very interesting how well this novel parallels what we've been through emotionally and societally. That blew me away, actually. I hadn't read it at all until um, the start of the pandemic. And it was kind of, I took sort of the opposite tack with it where I just thought like, well, this is probably as good a time as any to read this book. And so it was the second thing I did after the lockdown was just start reading it. And I loved it, but it was terrifying right? because, and I didn't even think about the phases until you and I, I think talked probably a couple of weeks later and you mentioned your strategy with it. And it's like, I was blown away by that. I was like, this is a way cooler way to do this. Like, but I had the experience of, um, yes, but I wanted to see how it ended, you know, like I wanted, I noticed well, yeah. he captured it so accurately through the stuff that we had been through at that point, which was minimal. But I mean, I was like, man, he nailed some weirdly specific things. So I kind of wanted to see how he saw this playing out and it was horrifying towards the middle. And, and then you mentioned that like, well, no, you can get more of an empathetic perspective if you go phase by phase along with it. And that was cool as hell. Yeah. And that wasn't my strategy at first, but once I kind of noticed that that's where it was going, um, like, I think I put it down anyway, just to read something else real quick. Mm-hmm. And then when I picked it back up, that's when I kind of realized like, oh, this really aligns with the, with the various phases that we're going through. And so then it became my strategy. But yeah, I, I can see how it would be super terrifying reading it at the beginning of a <laughs> pandemic. Um, yeah, I don't know. How, how much do you remember? Because we're, we're looking at beginning of last year. I remember a lot of the the sensations pretty vividly. I actually just brushed up on the characters a little bit earlier tonight just to kind okay. of make sure that I knew what the hell is going on. But but yeah, I mean I'm I'm foggy as far as like doing a real good synopsis or anything like that. It was it was so wrapped up in the kind of just all that the buzzing anxiety and all of the uncertainty of that time that I got so much more out of the um kind of like the subtext of it and how it made me feel and how I connected that to the world around me. So I remember that pretty 
pretty clearly, though. Yeah. Well, I don't know if we need to do a synopsis. Maybe we'll do that in, in future book club episodes. But for now, like, what I'd really like to talk about is how this book relates to the human condition. Yeah. And maybe even talk about why that's important for literature. But yeah, I think primarily I have a few passages underlined that we can kind of look at and see, like, and just kind of remember how we felt at that point in the pandemic, you know, like okay. how we felt at, at certain times that this book parallels. The word plague had just been uttered for the first time. At this stage of the narrative with Dr. Bernard Ryu standing at his window, the narrator may perhaps be allowed to justify the doctor's uncertainty and surprise, since with very slight differences his reaction was the same as that of the great majority of our townsfolk. Everybody knows that pestilences have a way of recurring in the world, yet somehow we find it hard to believe in ones that crash down on our heads from a blue sky. There have been as many plagues as wars in history, yet always plagues and wars take people equally by surprise. In fact, like our fellow citizens, Ryu was caught off his guard, and we should understand his hesitations in light of this fact, and similarly understand how he was torn between conflicting fears and confidence. When a war breaks out, people say it's too stupid, it can't last long. But though a war may well be too stupid, that doesn't prevent its lasting. Stupidity has a knack of getting its way, as we should see, if we were not always so much wrapped up in ourselves. Fucking Camus. I know, right? <laughs> I remember that passage. Yeah, that I had to stop reading for a sec after that one. It, it, it was so striking. I don't know. That was, that was everything we're going through at that time. Yeah, exactly. And it makes you think about like, you know, how our war is perpetuated, essentially the same way as plays are perpetuated. Usually, wars can be prevented from starting by the right people, but once something has started its effect is implacable until people kind of do the right thing. And as he says, get out of their own heads. I think that's what we've seen. I mean, this is a topic that's been done to death by literally every conversation that's been had in the past year. But what we've seen is that people can't get out of their own heads. And what we've seen is that like people can't really reason with the preventative measures that we can take for mm-hmm. slowing the spread of this thing. So well, that's one thing I thought he captured really well um, was the way that it didn't just begin with the plague and it, it sort of followed the same track that ours did. Like Ryu kind of was even doubtful himself, but then as soon as he started to realize that, oh, this is legit, like this is kind of going to happen to us, the townspeople weren't totally getting it and it sounded so fake and it sounded like it wouldn't happen here. And then it did happen there. And I noticed that with ours too, that there was this, it went from seeming just so ridiculous that nobody took it seriously to becoming so traumatic that you really can't poke people too hard when they're in that state, you know? So there was never an exhale where awareness or or presence could fill that moment. You know, it just became, you just shifted from one to the other and neither one is productive and I've kind of noticed that here. It's like people went from this could never happen, like this just happens in faraway places, to we're not talking about the reality of it. We're talking about, all right, how the hell are we going to get through this? Like, how are we going to comfort ourselves enough to get up tomorrow? You know, I don't know. I guess like having read that part of it back in the spring, I guess it had a feel of like reading something that was written by a survivor of such a thing. 
Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I guess we should mention um, this book is entirely fiction, but it's like loosely based on a cholera outbreak in a small coastal town in France in the 1800s. So this takes place in the 1940s or 50s in a coastal town in, in France, but it's the bubonic plague. But it does have that feeling of like having been written by a survivor. So it, it there's always kind of this hope in in the voice of the narrator that like someone has seen what this can do to a community. Yeah. And someone has seen the emotional impact as well as the physical impact on um on the sufferers of such a thing. But also I just like it I got so much like emotional reinforcement. There is a universal sense of separation that everyone feels yeah. during an event like this. And the emotions that I was having at the time that I read this book are the emotions that I was supposed to be having. And that yeah. felt really validating. Yeah. And I mean, just uh, the hope is such a through line, I think, through all of the parts there. And it's it's fascinating to me that he didn't live it, but he was able to capture that aspect of it so well that it flickers in the middle. Like, do you remember the part when they all had the, uh, he was describing all the houses with the shades down. Yeah. And just when the, the world became like, not only were people not going out, but they were fully closed in and he still wrote it from even just imagined hope at that point. I just, I found that to be such an interesting through line. There was never a point where everybody was completely subsumed and that made it all the more vicious in a way. Thus, week by week, the prisoners of plague put up what fight they could. Some, like Rambert, even contrived to fancy that they were still behaving as free men and had the power of choice. But actually, it would have been truer to say that by this time, mid-August, the plague had swallowed up everything and everyone. No longer were there individual destinies, only a collective destiny, made of plague and the emotions shared by all. Strongest of these emotions was the sense of exile and of deprivation, with all the cross-currents of revolt and fear set up by these. That is why the narrator thinks this moment, registering the climax of the summer heat and the disease, the best for describing on general lines, and by way of illustration, the excesses of the living, burials of the dead, and the plight of parted lovers. And he goes on in that chapter, I remember, to talk about <laughs> the burial rituals. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like how people were were mourning in many different ways, whether they were mourning the dead or whether they were mourning the just the people that they can't see anymore. And then yeah, the burial rituals that the people in charge had to go through in order to make sure that the plague was not spread from the bodies of the dead and they were mm. buried under a layer of of limestone. Yeah, that was about where I stopped getting any comfort from it for a period of time. Is <laughs> that chapter, or that section? And and here's the advantage of of reading it in the way that I did was that by that time, uh, I, we kind of knew that the death rate is relatively low with COVID, so it wasn't like that parallel wasn't there so much. Plus, it's a hoax, so we're good. Well, yeah, we were hearing hearing that from everybody, and so <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, the thing, it was so creepy, that part of the book, because it got so mechanical at points, too. Like, when he describes some of those rituals or just some of the practices that were going on and even detailing the shift of, like, some of these protagonists and authority figures and 
sources of like inadvertent comfort throughout the book, even just comfort and knowing that the plot is moving forward predictably, if nothing else is like even watching some of these people, it, it started to arrive on their doorstep and how they had to fend it off and how they had to keep their selves, themselves together throughout the entire thing. And some of them started to get sick at certain points. Some of them were just so beaten down by all the deaths they were surrounded by or having to talk to loved ones or work absurd hours. Like it just got so like, so automatic by that point. Mm. Nobody was musing about anything and it was so eerie. Yeah. I guess that's the point of the book where like it started to frustrate me too. Like there, there are definitely instances of people breaking the rules in the book and wanting to break quarantine and but overall i think it was taken more way more seriously in the book than it was taken in america yeah so like that's why that that part of the book started to be really frustrating to me because here it is mid-august and basically all summer long at that point in my reading by the time that i read that presumably it was in august i had experienced an entire summer of people just going out anyway and wanting to have their barbecues and wanting to do their summer rituals and people saying, Oh, summer's not going to last forever. You know, we have to take advantage of it. And it's like, why does this year have to be exactly like every other year? Yeah. You know, you can't take a dive. Like you can't choose your battles and just <laughs> for the sake of everyone's health, just stay in and stay in the air conditioning for a summer. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's all you got to do. That's kind of what I mean by like what I was saying earlier, that it, it goes from being absurd to, a real hard focus on the palliative and there's no sort of surveying what's happening in the middle there. And I noticed that a lot where like it becomes such an issue of like, we got to get ourselves through this just mentally. Like that's where we seem to jump to in the summer. It was like our psychological well being was taking a pretty good hit. So it's like, let's have a little bit of fun because we've earned it kind of thing. And mm -hmm. it's hard to fault anybody on that level because yeah, it's a legitimate hit, but at the same time, it's like, this is also a legitimate problem. And like, we have to figure out how to get through this and how to maybe not let this happen again. And, uh, I think he captured that pretty well too, just that urge to kind of go out and dance. But those people were so sheltered and those people were so beaten by this point. Well, and also what a great way to prevent the reader from thinking that all those summer activities are still okay than to put right in the middle of August a burial scene. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> I remember thinking to myself early in the summer, I have to get used to this. I have to start going out again mm. in some small measures. And so I just started, like, you know, <laughs> wearing the mask and the gloves, and, like, I would go to, like, the hardware store. Mm-hmm to get supplies for like stuff that I was building just recreationally or, you know, I'd go to the garden center and grab topsoil and, and plant supplies cause I was getting really into indoor gardening mm. and like that time was so full of hope that it was a lot easier to kind of muster the courage to go out and say like, okay, I'm not going to spend a ton of, like, I'm not going to be going to, to barbecues. I'm not going to be going out and like being social, but I do need to get used to what it takes just to go out into the world Yeah, right now. And I need to get used to what precautions I have to take and get used to feeling safe in the places where I need to be regularly. So there was some optimism that I had to employ at that point. And I think a lot of people felt that same thing, but took the optimism too far. Yeah. 
and that I think is like what this chapter is illustrating that like, you know, it's, it's real easy when you're in the South of France <laughs> to want to go out on a boat. <laughs> yeah. But, um, then, uh, everyone's going to die. Well, that's a good point too. Cause it's also like a, any sort of a disease like that. It, it's so open-ended. It's not kind of like a binary thing where you can think like, if we can just weather this for this long, then it'll be over. Cause I think most people are capable of weathering substantial discomfort for a finite amount of time, even if they don't realize it while they're doing it. But when it becomes like, this might just be life, like all that talk about the new normal. Yeah. I mean, that's terrifying. And like, it does sort of make you confront it in a different way. That's not just the practical physical well-being way. You know, you have to think about it like, well, eventually I am going to have to go shopping and this can't be a panic attack every single time. So how am I going to deal with this? And that's kind of its own things. I, I had a very similar experience in the spring and yeah, people took that so far the opposite way that like, well, this doesn't also mean that we can pretend this isn't happening. It just means that like there's a middle ground. Do you ever wonder why? Like, is it just the difference in eras or is it like the difference in the community or just the fact that the word plague is so scary and so known? Like, I don't think a lot of people had, I had personally never heard the word COVID prior to this. Yeah, I wonder what would have happened if they called it SARS. Hmm. Because if they said we have a plague, people would not be barbecuing. No. Everyone knows that the word plague means like three quarters of the population is going to die and it's rats and it's there's going to be some Middle Ages action happen. It sounds so goddamn scary. I think that's because it's like something that we're not, that isn't supposed to exist in modern culture. Yeah. So SARS would be less scary than plague mm -hmm. and COVID less scary than SARS. Yeah. It almost seems like it was marketed as COVID, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, right? Like, because <laughs> COVID is... SARS, right? Or SARS is COVID. Like there's, I think SARS is a coronavirus or something like that. SARS, like is, a co SARS is a coronavirus. COVID-19 is SARS-CoV-2. Okay. So that's why I was like, God damn, if they had just kind of like leapt on that one a little bit, somehow just spun it more that way. But they also had to keep people from going completely ballistic. So I sort of get that too. I don't know. I'm not sure if there's a way to handle that, but that makes me wonder if the, the population in, in the plague reacted to it because of like how he summed it up earlier in the book. Like this means death. This means this right. doesn't happen here. Yeah. But you know what I don't like is I don't like when people say like, I know things will never be normal again, mm. you know, cause I, I don't accept your premise because I don't think that anything is ever just normal. I think that things are constantly changing and evolving yeah. and this is the optimist in me, but like, a normal a year ago versus a normal a year from now is the same as like what was normal pre-prohibition and post-prohibition. Yeah. You know, like there's going to be a difference from year to year and there's going to be a difference from, you know, one societal norm to another and mm -hmm. things are always going to change. And it's like pre and post COVID is like pre and post America online any number of cultural shifts could happen that would cause our collective consciousness and our collective social experience and cultural experience to be one where we have to accept something that we did not have to accept several years earlier. Yeah. You know, I don't, so I don't like it when people say like, there's never, it's never going to be normal again. Like it will be normal again. We'll have to define a new normal. 
yeah. but this is how society works. And I think that's pessimistic talking. I mean, it's like Camus said to like some of the effect of, um, like this is obviously completely misquoted, but like never underestimate man's stupidity kind of a thing. Yeah. Like that is always going to be a force. And I don't know that it's going to be straight up stupidity in this case. Like it's not going to just be complete unbridled ignorance that resumes normality, but it's, you habituate after a while to anything. I mean, there's all those, like you see pictures of kids like playing soccer and like bombed out buildings and places that had been war torn previously or still were like people get used to things that no one should have to get used to. So there will be a normal even if it's not what we had. But I feel like it's also that through line of plagues and wars where we have this kind of weird climate now where like there's been shifts, like you mentioned, like prohibition, or you could say maybe something like the depression where there were bread lines and things like that going on and the act of living day to day was drastically different. But now it's like you have these constant reminders of like, you see the masks, you have to remember your mask, you got to put it on. You got to be real careful who comes over. There's these gathering limits. So I see that being a really hard thing to wrap the collective head around. Yeah. The same way it was in there. We're like getting used to like, this is how a funeral happens now. And this is right. what happens when your loved one gets taken away. Like it really redefines liberties that I think a lot of people don't even realize they have. Well, and also what is considered liberty, which is mm -hmm. what this passage is talking about. It's like this feeling of exile and imprisonment and being unable to see everyone. Um, as you know, like mid-August for me was when I started to feel a profound sense of separateness and depression. And I wasn't very good at assimilating into a community before this. And now you're telling me I can't even practice. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I didn't feel put upon. I didn't feel like my my government owed me my freedom or anything like that. But I did feel like... Um, I was starting to feel a profound sense of hopelessness, a profound sense of separateness from community. And, and it's kind of when I started kind of meditating on what belonging means. And there's, you know, this ideological pressure put upon you to like, like everyone has sort of developed their own individual ideologies around COVID and mm -hmm. what they'll allow themselves to do and how big is their bubble and how many liberties can they afford themselves yeah, I don't know. So it it just makes so much sense that like that's where we would enter into that mindset. It makes sense that it was summer and it makes sense that that would be answered by like, oh, you can you can make those choices, but mm. here's how you're going to have to bury your dead. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I like vividly remember waking up that morning all those articles came out about running out of um morgue space down in New York. Oh yeah. 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 When they were like using the, uh, the freezer trucks and stuff, that was like the most sickening thing. Like just to wake up and see those pictures and be like, okay, I've never <laughs> seen that happen here. That was, and then I think that night or like very shortly after there somewhere, an ambulance just went by, like I was going to sleep and it had like nothing to do with anything, but it was just, in that mindset of like, you you know, you're waking up to like, we literally can't even bury our dead anymore. Mm -hmm. And this is like two weeks after realizing a pandemic can happen. Like I thought this was like a, you know, World War Z kind of thing, like a zombie movie sort of a thing. Like we don't have these, we have <laughs> right. epidemics, but we don't have pandemics. Yeah. And uh, that night just this ambulance went by super slowly at like 3.30 in the morning with lights on and everything. 
And I just remember it like seemed so funerary. And this is like, I was like halfway through the plague and it just all came together in that moment. I was just lying in bed like, oh God, it's happening right here. Like literally on my street. And in reality, I mean, it was probably not, but because, you know, we didn't have any outbreaks or anything right here. But at that moment, it seemed like it could be anywhere. And it was just, it literally hit home of like, just how I so like remember how slowly that thing was moving. And it was so fucking creepy. And it was the only light in the world. Like I live in like the boonies compared to a place where cars actually go at three in the morning. And it was the only sound, the only vehicle and just the low noise. And it was like, it just sunk in in real time. While that thing went by, I'm like, wow, this is life now. I gotta figure this out. It comes to this. Like all of us who have not yet died of plague, he fully realizes that his freedom and his life may be snatched from him at any moment. But since he personally has learned what it is to live in a state of constant fear, he finds it normal that others should come to know this state. Or perhaps it should be put like this. Fear seems to him more bearable under these conditions than it was when he had to bear its burden alone. That's a very specific perspective to this whole situation that I don't think I would have related to in this book beforehand. It's like the underbelly of solidarity, you know? Yeah, because when you think of collective fear, like what's necessary in that moment is solidarity. But I haven't ex ever experienced that specific type of fear. Like the closest I've ever come was 9-11. Mm. And that wasn't really as prolonged yeah or even really as threatening if i'm being honest yeah there were like conspiracy theories about what place was going to be attacked next whatever yeah but it never really it, it wasn't really a palpable threat like you had to really really believe that there was some imminent danger that wasn't actually provable and it was it was focused like it was even if it was coming you know it was coming to specific places there were forces working against it. There's kind of the, the good and evil mindset that can take hold. And that's almost, at least relative to this, I personally find that a little bit easier to wrap my head around that kind of fear than something that's like you all of a sudden just find out is in your midst. But that also has been like, I have to imagine in, in this book, like the people in this town or even are like completely isolated from each other. And, like, they shut down the postal service and everything. And, like, I imagine maybe they could have made phone calls in this milieu. But, you know, that that's, like, been the most important thing to me is keeping in touch with people and talking about our fears. Like, that's been hugely valuable. So, Kimmy was reading my mind at that point in time. Yeah. It's just, like, I want people to actually understand my reasons for being afraid and then tell me their own. And, uh... Yeah, I got a lot out of that. But it was odd, too, because nobody could say that it was going to be okay. Right. So there was sort of the... We were all on the same level. We were all able to confide in one another and help one another in the short term. But there was also this... I mean, that's like the truest solidarity when you think about it. Well, and that's kind of like what I would say about a lot of this narrative is it poses the question, is solidarity comfort enough? Or can solidarity be comfort enough? And uh, often it's not. Yeah, I found that as at, well. At certain points in this pandemic, it has been, though. On average, I think it's not, personally. It's like just as a, on a macro level, you know, but there are definitely those situations where it's just the thing that you need. 
And those mean the, the absolute world? Yeah, I think I, I value physical comfort more. I value like actually being in person with people more. I've told you before, I did not realize <laughs> how much uh, how much like sharing a meal with someone is like the gold standard of shared experiences. Mm. But yeah, I, I, I do think that I'm even looking for it more. I'm even looking for solidarity to be a form of comfort such that it can sustain me. If I don't have access to physical touch, if I don't have access to close proximity with another person in that moment. Yeah. It's a way of dealing with the the formality of it too. Like not even just the fear, but like one of the things I think that hasn't been really talked about as much is that even though we've, we've all been, you know, you see all the commercials and shit where people are like going to work in their pajamas and whatever, but this has really been the death of casual. Like we've lost the ability to just casually do basically anything because it used to be like that not only sharing a meal, but you could just sort of choose on a whim to share a meal. You know, you could all just be walking down the street and say, let's walk into this cool restaurant or this diner and like sit down and have a cup of coffee or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know when the next time I'll personally be able to do that is. And so in that way, the solidarity is huge because at least it's like, well, it's not just me. I don't feel as much like a prisoner when I think about that because it's like, well, yeah, this is just gone. And isn't that why we resent people who are still going out and 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 being maybe more social than they should be? It is, yes. Because like you can see, like if you have a friend who's doing that, you can see them and be like, "Will you please make our next meal together as valuable as it will be for me?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and like <laughs> it's like I guess like just acknowledge the scarcity of the moments that we have together, so that they'll be as rewarding when we have them again yeah yeah plus there's just the feeling of impending loss when that happens of like like if i i have a few close friends family members and things who are being in my opinion way too fast and loose and uh i'm now like also considering the fact that they may very well die and i may very well never see them again because it's not safe for me to see them yeah and i can't get them to like understand that on any level so there's all these layers to this man it's like that's the thing that blew me away the most about this book overall was just how many of these weird little layers and these like double back moments that you have like all of these little intricacies i don't know i don't understand how the hell he nailed those so well i mean it's Camus, but it's also like holy shit like there were subplots upon subplots that i didn't even know existed at certain points of reading this book that now I've realized I've lived. And when I think back to them, I'm like, how could he even mm. fucking imagine that? It's funny. Like he, he dedicated so much of his life and his work to the exploration of the human condition that I think just like fi- just a fictionalized account of what could potentially happen in a small town. If an epidemic were to occur, he just knows. And isn't that proof positive that there is a human condition then? Is there a debate about that? Well, I mean, it's just, it's so crazy to see it with such a fine point that like, yeah, it's such a studyable thing and it's such a universal thing that he can take it as an abstraction and make it this specific. And then we can live that specific version of that abstraction and it still checks out. For the first time, Ryu found that he could give a name to the family likeness that for several months he had detected in the faces in the streets. He had only to look around him now At the end of the plague, with its misery and privations, these men and women had come to wear the aspect of the part they had been playing for so long, 
the part of emigrants whose faces first and now their clothes told of long banishment from a distant homeland. Once plague had shut the gates of the town, they had settled down to a life of separation, debarred from the living warmth that gives forgetfulness of all. In different degrees, in every part of the town, men and women had been yearning for a reunion, not of the same kind for all, but for all alike ruled out. Most of them had longed intensely for an absent one, for the warmth of a body, for love, or merely for a life that habit had endeared. Some, often without knowing it, suffered from being deprived of the company of friends, and from their inability to get in touch with them through the usual channels of friendship, letters, trains, and boats. Others, a desired reunion was something they couldn't have defined, but which seemed to them the only desirable thing on earth. For want of a better name, they sometimes called it peace. I've talked about this a lot, like how I'm really good at being alone most of the time. And I don't even necessarily think that most of the time what I'm missing is friendships or what I'm missing is like physical touch or anything like that. I think most of the time I'm I'm missing restfulness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a difference. But I like that. I like that it's like, it's not necessarily objectively peace. It's like what some people call it, but there is like a mystery associated with a longing that I think many of us have, aside from just getting back to normal. Because again, what even would normal be? It would be an adaptation to what we're going through now. So yeah, just as, aside from what people would consider the normalcy that they want to return to, there's something else maybe that didn't even exist before this pandemic, maybe that I've even wanted before the pandemic, but maybe it like slowed my ability to strive for it. Mm. And maybe that is peace. But either way, it is a mystery to me. And like, I'd, <laughs> I'll know it when I feel it, you know? Yeah. That was a line that really got to me. No, I mean, I feel similarly. It's, I think if I had to pinpoint the biggest shift that this has made in me, it's that too. It's, it's just, I did not realize that it was there. I did not realize that it would mean as much as it does. But yeah, it's gone. I like that line he has about the um, the people of that area looking like emigrants too and just kind of wearing it on their faces and their clothes because I've often kind of wondered that about the generations that are really either coming of age or just really like living the core of this experience. You know, how's this going to look years down the line? Like, are we going to look a little bit different? Are we going to just have, you know, some people just get that look in their eye and you can tell they've just been through it whatever mm -hmm. it might be. Like, I just wonder if there's going to be that little, that little bit, the way like a lot of um, elderly people who went through the depression can look like, or sure. can act like they just have these personality traits kind of hammered into them that like, you, you know, they might suppress them to some extent, but there's going to be those little flickers where you're like, Oh yeah. And I just wonder how much of this will all be able to wash off. I don't know. My, my presumption would be a bit, I think I was talking about this the other day with somebody like our brains were so quickly trained to judge anybody not wearing a mask or judge anybody getting too close to each other. Yeah. And I think that our brains will be just as quickly untrained. Oh, yeah. I, th I don't think it'll take that long to adjust to not having to socially distance anymore. But I do think this will kind of be a shift in perspective. Yeah, and that's more what I mean on like the the deeper levels of your your psyche and your spirituality and your personality. Like, we've all had to redefine alone and yeah. redefine comfort and tranquility and just stuff like that. It, it can 
it took on such a new meaning so suddenly. I don't know if we can or should shake that. No, I don't think that we should. But I think it's different. I mean, maybe it could have the same effect. Like people who grew up during the Depression or like were were raised in scarce in, in times of scarcity. Those are the kinds of people who usually like develop hoarding disorder or eating disorders or like there's an attachment to like abundance mm-hmm. because they don't know when times of scarcity will happen again. But then the flip side of it is how you use stuff too, though. You know, like the way that a depression era person would would know how to use the entire entire loaf of bread or right. all of the ingredients and exactly how far they can be spoiled before they're actually going to do some havoc on you. Like, yeah, I found that shift has happened uh, with me just the way that I look at objects and materials and things like I got really part of this was just a therapeutic thing but I got really into just kind of like building shit and like screwing around with how to fix stuff on my own which I've always liked but I've just always sucked at and I realized like out of necessity I have to fix some stuff in my house and uh it's completely made me rethink I look at so much shit now in terms of diameters and and materials as opposed to like (laughs) oh that's broken I need to buy another thing because even yeah. at my brokest, I would still try to think of it as a way of how can I claw my way to being able to get that thing, not how do I make that thing out of thin air. And I I don't know. I don't want that to, to leave, but it feels like it's getting deep enough at this point that like <laughs> I'm just looking at it as a circle in that. I can, I can work with that. Or I know exactly what crazy glue will stick to now. So it's... <laughs> become part of my personality, man. <laughs> oh, I love that. No, I totally agree. There is a uh, a resourcefulness that I think we've all had to develop. Yeah, personally, I'm a way better cook now. Like, I was already a pretty decent cook, but like I learned the other day how you're supposed to properly season rice. And my oh, life yeah? is forever changed. How do you do it? Dude, turmeric, coriander, and nutmeg. Huh. Yeah. We should do a black market cook book. <laughs> club (laughs) that sentence started coming out and it just went somewhere else briefly but black market cooking something i don't know we'll find a way to make it catchy but dude i'm actually when i launch my patreon i'm gonna launch a uh, a cooking show that would be sick i would watch the shit out of that it's gonna be called to harvest endless roast (laughs) dude that's fucking awesome Oh man, I would watch that every single time that you put something I can't wait. <laughs> it's going to be great. <laughs> uh, that'll be great. I can see that being the most soothing thing, but also just good recipes too. And the listener has probably not had your bread or your coffee. Probably not. They should learn how to make it if you're teaching them. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it there. Yeah. Like the whole world needs to learn to be better cooks. Yeah. And that was definitely one of like the things that I had in mind right when the pandemic started. <laughs> just like, oh, I have, I'm going to have to stock up on food because mm-hmm. I don't like, there were, a, there were a few months in a row where I did buy a month's worth of groceries. Yeah. Yeah. So that I wouldn't have to go to the store. And uh, that was way too stressful. So I went down to like two weeks. Mm. But yeah, like at the beginning of that two weeks, like make some stuff ahead of time, you know, cook some things that are freezable just stuff like that and you just learn how to prepare food better and you learn how to uh budget it out better you know yeah 
I've always maintained like an ability to make all my favorite foods. Like I've always made sure that at the bare minimum I can cook what I like and I can cook like kind of what's on the periphery of that. Like make sure I can cook like, like I don't make a lot of baked goods for myself, but I want to be able to pull a birthday cake out of my ass at two in the morning and like, <laughs> which I've had to be able to do. And it's like, it's good to know. It's like driving stick, you know, it's good to just kind of like have that tucked away. Yeah. But uh, this whole thing has made me really look at it with a little bit more creative zeal and like think about the spices and think about the the different things you can, I don't know, what you can form. Like you take the same set of ingredients and turn them into a thousand different things. And that's always kind of fun. Yeah. Well, the other thing is like, you know, for the most part, Kate is the only one that I'm having that shared experience with of like sharing a meal together, mm. you know? So when she comes over, I want to do it right. She's always a better cook than me anyway. Um, but there are some things that I just do a little bit better. And I think she would agree. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think like that's the most important thing to take away from this pandemic is like emotional resourcefulness and physical resourcefulness. And like, if you're not doing that, you're not, you're not doing the job right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because it's sort of like on one hand, I actually thought about it a lot in like literal terms. But in the beginning of it, I I think I mentioned in one of ours too. But I thought a lot about like just people in prison, and like I think Nelson Mandela came to mind specifically when I was thinking about that. But I was just considering like, man, these are people that are stuck in this tiny ass room with the bare minimum to survive, and you know, they're keeping up weightlifting routines and they're making like snacks and meals and all sorts of shit. And they're like, they're reading. Some of them come out with degrees. They come out with the whole new spiritual angles. Like if that's what the human mind can do in captivity like that, I still get to be in my house. Like this is not that bad compared to that. Yeah. So it became more of a like, all right, well now let's just survey the cage a little bit and let's figure out what's in here and what we got to work with. And like, then it became inspiring in a weird way. There's still the the terror and the depression and like those things are still alive and well. But like I, I very early in this made an agreement with my mom, like we're going to try to learn a new skill or, or learn a new recipe or something every day. Mm. And just we have to eat, we have to fix shit, we have to build shit or whatever. So let's make it fun. Let's make it challenging. And we've missed some days. But I mean, on average, it's been really kind of interesting to see when you start pulling on that thread and you start like just saying, all right, I'm going to just read a ton. Let's start reading all these books that I've been interested in for a while or learning a new language or instrument. It's like, there's so much shit you can do when you sort of let go of that old, that old normal. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it brings its own set of shit with it, but it becomes kind of weirdly awesome at points. Yeah, no, I agree. That's that's why spring was so optimistic for me. Yeah. Cause like, that's kind of when I had that impulse, the impulse to learn new skills, the impulse to improve myself while I had the time to improve myself. And then as you know, my life kind of fell apart a little bit and I was <laughs> way overextended mm. for a while. But, um, now I'm, I'm kind of back to that, uh, <laughs> to that sense of normalcy. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> See, even now, even now I can look at June when there was a pandemic yeah. and now when there's still a pandemic and I'm saying I'm going back to a certain type of normalcy that existed then Yeah, that uh, I'm looking at more free time and I'm looking at more, uh, a better ability to focus and I feel like I'm back into that headspace now. Like I'm going to learn new things again and I'm going to be 
occupying my time the way that I think more people should be right now. Because you will have those extra skills and you will have that sense of having been through it and that sense of having survived something not helplessly, but with as much resilience as you could muster. Yeah. And even from those moments where the bottom falls out, you, you learn from that if you look at it, even if it's in retrospect. I mean, there's value in finding an honest-to-God limit, and it's easy to not do that on average, like in life, just throughout <laughs> normal life. It's uh, it's just you don't always have to. Like, There's not always an opportunity to push yourself that hard. And now it's, I don't know, it's almost like... um when like an athlete is working on their usual shit and then they go up to a place with a very high elevation and just doing normal stuff becomes 10 times harder, doing hard stuff becomes fucking impossible. And then they come back from that having learned a lot more about the mechanics of it and, and they become stronger and stuff. It almost feels like that. It's like just going to the store now is like what public speaking was. So there's so much shit happening on a minute level that we're not even aware of. And yeah, when the bottom falls out for a couple of weeks and you you can't get out of bed or whatever, things are not going well. And then you come out the other side, you can learn from like, all right, I hit this kind of limit. How did I handle that? How long did it last? Did I need it? Or did I stop pushing for some reason? I wonder why that was. Or, you know, every time it's like you can learn a little bit more. And I don't know. I think that's, to me, that's what changes a person overall. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's immense value in that but you got to suffer equally immensely to get that value. And it was in the midst of shouts rolling against the terrace wall in massive waves that waxed in volume and duration, while cataracts of colored fire fell thicker through the darkness, that Dr. Ryu resolved to compile this chronicle, so that he should not be one of those who hold their peace, but should bear witness in favor of those plague-stricken people so that some memorial of the injustice and outrage done them might endure, and to state quite simply what we learn in a time of pestilence, that there are more things to admire in men than to despise. Nonetheless, he knew that the tale he had to tell could not be one of a final victory. It could only be the record of what had had to be done, and what assuredly would have to be done again, in the never-ending fight against terror and its relentless onslaughts, despite their personal afflictions by all who, while unable to be saints but refusing to bow down to pestilences, strive their utmost to be healers. I like the being a champion for the people. Mm. I like that he kind of takes it upon himself to say, this will be a published chronicle. And I think that's kind of like Camus' whole thing in this book. Like, no one's ever done this before. (laughs) No one's ever put down on paper exactly what the emotional struggles are of Mm. this level of separateness. Since there have been written accounts, people have chronicled the witch trials or I'm sure other pestilences of some kind and like various instances of collective suffering throughout history. Mm. But he does it in this way that tells us how we will feel and not just what we will see if this were ever to occur in our lifetimes. I actually wonder if people who read this book before COVID were better prepared. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, because there's so much stuff in there that gets revealed to you. Yeah. And he just kind of sets it up for you to understand. 
And then there's other things that he does totally just clue you in on and and the comfort is I am I'm feeling the empathy nowadays way more than I did in the beginning, but the comfort that he can provide too is enormous. Yeah. I, and I like the I, I think that the way that Ryu is being the champion for the people is that he is in letting it be known that there is more to admire than to revile or whatever word he used. Is he saying like what there is to be admired about men is that, let's use the word humans, is that they are capable of solidarity in this way, is that they are capable of empathy, is that they will share an experience like this. And you'll know, you'll have a sense of how they feel because they are you. Yeah. And I think that's the way in which he's being a champion of the people by publishing this thing. Like, you can speak in generalities and you can speak in in more universal assumptions about what people are experiencing, what people are feeling, because, as you said before, the human condition is so studyable and so predictable in a sense. But, yeah, reading this book, like, really, as I said at the beginning, like, validated a lot of the emotions that I've been feeling over the course of the pandemic. Mm. And it made me crave more solidarity, for sure. Yeah. Like, it made me wish that the personal fears that I've had were seen more. But it also just made me to understand that this is canon. Mm. Like, these emotions, these kind of experience, like, it doesn't not belong in the world. You know, sometimes it happens and you have to adapt. Yeah, I mean, that's... It's it's weird to think about things like this in those terms because I was actually just thinking about this, like, a few hours before we went on mic here, but... Uh, I was thinking about the Dark Ages, how we read about that as just an epic, but that was a lot of people's entire lifetime. Mm-hmm. Like their lives were just the Dark Ages. <laughs> and that is it. <laughs> yeah. They didn't get to like pop through the other side and go, wow, shit, that was horrible. But for some reason it is comforting to find out that like, yeah, we're living through one of these. I wonder how that's going to go. And uh, Yeah, and you look at a time like that and you think you got to think to yourself, well, why shouldn't the idea of original sin <laughs> have, have been canonized, you know? Yeah. Because everyone must have felt punished. Yeah. From the second they're born. Yeah. I mean, by any, like, logical metric they were, too, because it's yeah. just every moment of their life was just inexplicable punishment. So at least we're not there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 